good evening. We'll just keep moving, you know, so we can get us through and get you to Q&A. Um, Becky, I don't, did you, did you mention for the Q&A portion, you can go to the slido.com and there's a code in your um, agenda, okay? And so I, I encourage you to do that. You can get on that anytime and go ahead and ask questions. So if you have a question that comes to mind, um, please go on there and ask, and we will do our best to attempt to address those later. Um, I am Sherry Olson. I welcome you here. I'm so terribly sorry I was late this evening. Our poor dear Teresa Burke sat in a plane for three hours um, on the runway in Portland this or not Portland, Seattle this afternoon. Um, and so we were constantly texting of when she was coming in because I was on deck to pick her up. I'm pleased to say that she is now at home um, and her comment as we were driving, leaving the airport is, if you hit a deer on the way home, can we just gut it and eat it? <laughs> the poor dear woman was really hungry. So fed her and she's in bed because she is four hours ahead of us in her time clock. Um, so she's exhausted and hopefully she's resting well and she'll be able to be ready to go in the morning. But always gracious, um, always gracious. It was a delight to be able to visit with her, but I'm very sorry I was late this evening. I get the pleasure of getting to be the executive director at Path of Life, um, which is just, it's kind of one of those super cool jobs that I get to do and look at some of the wonderful people I get to work with every day. It's a blessing to look out and see a lot of you because we get to pray together, um, you know, when you're there for your volunteer time. and so. That's an extra perk, I feel like, at the job that I get to do. Um, also, I think thank you all for inviting me to be able to do a portion of this. I do love to public speak. Um, I like to talk, sorry. Um, but that some of the topics that we're going to cover tonight that we're specifically going to do as relates to post-abortion issues, we'll be looking at why a group, why a group instead of this idea, and Becky was touching on that as well, as opposed to just, you know, getting online and doing it on a one-on-one, -on -one, maybe never visiting with anybody else. And then the second issue we'll discover and talk about will be group guidelines and how to start a group or a retreat. If you're wanting to do that, please keep in mind that I'll be using those words, group, retreat, interchangeably, meaning like in a community setting that a healing process in a community setting. And then finally, we'll look at, are you ready to lead a group? Are you in a position to step into that? And we'll look at some personal questions. Um, I won't call on you and make you answer them, but some things that were self-reflection where we can look at and go, hey, am I really ready to do this? And is this what the Lord is calling me to do? So let's start with why a group? I love this quote. I pulled it out of an old book by Neil Anderson called Victory Over the Darkness. And it says, spiritual growth and maturity happen best in community of people who know and accept each other. We need to move beyond sharing information and start sharing our lives. And that's primarily what happens in that group setting is we begin to share our lives with one another. We go deeper than just the surface issues, and we go down a little bit. And growth happens and takes place in that context. Also, why a group? In an old, another old resource, in Giving Sorrow, 
words. Aristotle wrote about, okay, and I was practicing this earlier today, and it was like, I couldn't say catharsis. Say it for me. Okay, thank you. I, I, and I mean, I, several times I'm like, why is this tough today? I don't know. It is. Um, the catharsis of emotions expressed in trust tragedy, and of course it's in here multiple times. <laughs> Catharsis has been defined as purification of the emotions by vicarious experiences. There's a sense that in telling, there's a releasing of emotions. So it's like, you know, letting the cap off. Do you remember, you know, I, mean, I can remember years ago, Daddy, um, we talk about the, the radiator overheating, and he's like, okay, don't take the cap off because it might blow. And, and that you, know, you could be covered in the hot steam and the hot water within it. But this is the release of those emotions rather than having them blow. It's a cleansing that comes in the articulation of expression of experience. Catharsis, I don't know if I did that right or not, can also come through the commonality of shared experience when people realize they're not alone in what they have suffered. I can remember one sweet woman many years ago, you know, we're all gathering for the first night for the group, and Becky was saying, you know, golly, they come that first night, and their cover's blown. Okay? You haven't even opened your mouth, and everyone in that room knows why you're there for heaven's sake. And so you are completely exposed. And this sweet woman sat there and she goes, oh my gosh, I'm so glad to see you all. You look so normal. Thank you for that, I think. <laughs> but bless her heart, you know, we do have that when there is some kind of a shared experience that is deep and it's secret and it's frightening and we worry about what people are going to think about us and her sweet voice of saying, you all look so normal. I wish my husband could see you. You know, I mean, there's just in society or in certain circles an idea of what does somebody who had an abortion look like? Who are they? What did they act like? And for this dear woman, it was good to be in a place where she was with other people who could understand her. And we looked normal to her. And why do we care? Well, we, we look at Path of Life because we are a faith-based organization. And Dr. Burke will share with you tomorrow. Rachel's Vineyard is faith-based as well. Um, we look for that biblical basis. And the biblical basis for a group is in Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. And we're all pretty well aware of what two years of isolation has done to some of us individually and to our country. That isolation hasn't had a, pro a, a positive impact, a positive output, you might say. Another thing to consider is, what's the enemy's mission? Well, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, who? The devil, prowls around looking like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. First Peter 5 verse 8. And I did a little bit of research on lions because I'm kind of fascinated by them. And this isn't the lion that we're talking about that's in the Narnia series. I mean, that is God. That is Aslan. That is, you know, our Lord. This is the lion that's seeking to devour us. And here's what I found or what I learned. Lions are armed with all the appropriate tools to be a great hunter. 
curved and elongated canine teeth, sharp and backward slanting whiskers, camouflage coloring, sharp claws, and incredible power, strength, and agility. The only flaw in the repertoire of the lion is their lack of stamina in chasing their prey. I didn't know that lions had a lack of stamina. I found that interesting. Lions have excellent acceleration, but they're unable to chase their prey for long distances. So this means, okay, this is key, listen to this. They have become extremely adept at getting very close to the prey they intend to kill. Interesting, when you think of that in the context of 1 Peter 5 and 8, and you think of the lion getting very close to its prey. Have you ever seen a cat when it's chasing you know, its prey? Gets low to the ground and kind of does you know, its little thing and then sort of plays the red light, green light game with you. If you move, the cat's still. If you're still, the cat might move forward a little bit more. Similar thing with a lion, who is part of the cat family, moving forward. That it's a stalking behavior, and they want to hide and intently watch as they slink cl ever closer to their prey. Grasslands, bush, things that provide cover for them are where they want to go because they're trying to sneak up on you sneak upon their prey. They utilize the cover of night to increase their foraging success by hunting when the moon is either down or covered by clouds. Interesting. So like in the darkness, evil lurks in the darkness. I, I mean, I just found this so fascinating. When stalking the prey, the lion changes its posture by lowering its head and body, staying low to the ground, while keeping a visual lock on the target. So the enemy has a visual lock on us. Whenever the prey looks away or looks down to eat, the lion creeps ever closer. And if the prey is to look in the direction of the lion, the lion will stop, the red light, green light game. After the lion has entered the striking distance, it pounces and ends the chase rather abruptly and viciously. Oh my goodness, isn't that interesting? And doesn't that give us you know, a picture of this whole idea of the roaring lion looking to for its prey that it wants to devour and it wants to come upon. And so, as we think of that in that context, one of the things that a lion loves is to get its prey isolated, off by itself. And so, I believe that's one of the biggest positions that would support a group format of healing because if I'm trying to heal in isolation, my mind can be filled with all kinds of things and be subject to no accountability other than my own. And let me tell you, my mind can often take me things and places that are really not healthy for me and places I shouldn't go. Often that can be because I may have a stronghold 
that I don't even know that I have. What is a stronghold? It's a fortress with difficult access. And sexual sin is indeed a stronghold. In Luke 11, 14 to 28, Satan is the stronghold, strong man, and he's guarding his area with armor on. In scripture, we see the word stronghold applied both to substitutes for God and the bondage that those substitutes produce. A stronghold is any argument or pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. It exalts itself in my mind, pretending to be larger or more powerful than my God. It steals our focus and causes us to feel overpowered, controlled, mastered. Think about it. I am never going to go over this. I'm used goods. I will always be the woman who's had abortions in my history. And those are the lines that the lion will feed me. And so what I need to be able to do throughout this process of healing is to steal back my thought life from Satan and do what? Take it captive to Christ. The enemy's chief target is often our minds. Because that's the place where he can worm in. It's the most effective way to influence my behavior is to influence my thinking. Why do you think the battlefield is the mind rather than my actions? Because we act out what we believe what is in our minds, not necessarily what we know to be truth. And so when the enemy wages that war against us, when that prowling lion is coming around, that primary battlefield is generally the mind. Because our minds control our actions, we decide what to do. But at a deeper level, we act out what we really and truly believe. So strongholds are also often referred to as yokes. Think of a yoke that puts two oxen together. And they're a direct result of my personal choices. But they bind me, they can bind me to Satan instead of God. And that yoke is designed to do what? Make me go wherever my master wants me to go. Wherever that master wishes to lead me. So I become captive to that yoke that I've allowed to take captive in my mind. Should I fail to obey you, Lord, I will serve the enemies that have come against me. And so it's a clear choice for us to serve the Lord or to serve the enemies. And often those strongholds have become so very familiar to me that I'm not even aware of them. But yet when I'm in community or my husband, somebody can point out to me did you realize that? Or perhaps they're having a struggle that they have realized. And as they bring that to the surface, then I realize, oh, dang, I struggle with that as well. And so that's primarily why I see groups as hugely beneficial. Those have been the places when I have been around others. They have pointed out to me, often painfully so, my shortcomings. 
But yet those have been the places that the healing then has either been able to begin to take place and I've been able to see growth after that. And so I encourage you, you know, I mean, we, nobody wants to go through a group. I can assure you, even Becky said, I'm not picking on you, Becky, really. But, but she said, I didn't want to go to a group, but I wanted to volunteer. Nobody wants to go to a group. Nobody wants to attend a retreat. It's a very difficult thing to do. Until you get to that place where you're so incredibly desperate, you're going to do whatever it takes to feel better. Or you want to volunteer. Something will happen to trigger that movement toward a group setting. And once you get there, then you realize, my word, why did I stay away from this so long? Why didn't I do this sooner? Why didn't I hang out with these people before? And so keep that in mind in the group process, because often if you're talking with people, they'll say, oh, I don't want to do a group. Will you just do it one-on-one? -on -one? Everybody says that. I would prefer to do it one-on-one. -on -one. Can I just meet with you? I like you. You know? Because suddenly they're OK with you. They're safe with you. And it's our job as leaders then to reassure them that, you know what, you're not alone in this. Everybody feels like this. This is really common. And so keep that in mind when you're thinking about groups. Now we're going to shift to the group guidelines and how to start a group. And the starting point that I always say is pray, pray. And then when you're done with that, pray some more. And when you think you're done, pray more. And if you have friends and loved ones who will pray for you, great, even better. Ask them to pray for you. Have prayer partners for every single group member because you need that. That is absolutely critical as a starting point anytime you step into post-abortion ministry or any ministry for that matter. The next thing that we recommend is an intake or some kind of a client referral process. And that, like at Path of Life, we have a 24-hour phone line um, that now gets spam calls, which I'm sure you all get. You know, and you're going, dang. <laughs> Now this is a business. <laughs> Why are you calling this? But the purpose of that is that someone can call at any time, and someone will be on the other end of that line to be able to take the call and to make the referral. So whatever you decide, however you decide to set up, just make sure you have a consistent way of handling your new clients. What will happen when they come in? Will I ask questions? Will I refer them to someone else? But if you miss that call, make contact as soon as possible. Generally, there's been some kind of a triggering event that has caused them to call. And so we don't want to hang on to that phone message you know, for a couple of weeks or so before we get back to them. No, we try to make the contact at least within 24 hours of the time that we hear from a client. And then beyond that, we want to do some screening. So, First of all, I've got referrals. How do you get referrals? Most common way is word of mouth. Somebody who went through a group and said, oh my word, you won't believe this. I love this. Give it a shot. That's, that's your best resource are those word of mouth. 
Um, and keep the first things first, okay? Often when somebody makes that call, they may be calling and saying, okay, I had an abortion. I heard that you guys have post-abortion recovery, but I've also was abused and I am on drugs and I've been in jail and my children are taken away. And, and I mean, pretty soon it's like, goodness gracious, okay? It's a lot, there are a lot of things and that's pretty common, but remember, What's your focus? What's your focus in ministry? And like our post-abortion recovery groups, we're here to look at the abortion. And often, I think, when we try to take this whole basket all at once, it becomes overwhelming, not only for you, but also for the client. You may be qualified to help in all of those areas, but taking it all at once is often too much. I always felt so very thankful that the Lord was so gracious to me that when he brought me to the place of looking at my abortion experiences when I was in my late 20s, he didn't make me work through everything, every issue at that time. I was recently divorced, but the abortion was the thing that was front and center. And then that was because it was another loss. Okay, can you understand the connection? I hadn't dealt with this loss, the loss of the, my children through abortion. So then when, when my husband divorced me, that was another loss. So I had complicated or compounded grief. And I didn't know how to deal with that loss as well. But the Lord was gracious, and he allowed me to, to walk through and to work through those abortions. Then he allowed me to walk and work through that divorce. And then later it came and surfaced that I had been abused, sexually abused as a child. And he let me, he gave me time to do that. And so keep the first things the first things. Don't go, okay, let's write and do all of this at once, because it will become very confusing and it will become very mired. I always felt in that, God, you're such a gentleman that you didn't just dump that on me all at once and say, Sherry, get your act together and clean things up. He didn't do that. He didn't do that. And so that's how we want to also work with our clients in that same compassionate manner. First things first. You will need to decide, will you do phone screening versus in-person screening? I would recommend at the outset, at the beginning, that you do in-person until you've gained some experience. Simply because in-person gives you a lot more information. The body language tells you things. The look tells you where they're at. The legs are crossed, the purse is held. Trust me, I'm not gonna take your purse. You know, I mean, it gives you a lot of information that you can't get otherwise. And so when you're very new at it, I do recommend in person rather than on the phone. Now, after a time, you do begin to develop where you can hear in the tone of voice, kind of the direction a client is going. Um, and so sometimes a phone interview will work in those situations as well. Or if the individual's out of the area, phone may be your only option. And I'm, so I'm not saying don't only do in person if you've got somebody in Yakima. For heaven's sake, no, do it over the phone. You know, of course, because you want to do that screening the best that you can. So what do we need to know in a screening? Well, tell me what made you call? How did you hear about us? You want to walk 
a little gently at first, but you do want to get a little bit of information, like have you had more than one abortion? Have you experienced some of the following side effects? We do have an intake sheet where we, you know, we can go down through those. It's a pretty big list. We don't necessarily go through everything, but some of them, this generally leads to this, which leads to that, which leads to that. Those are questions that we will ask. But set yourself up for how will you ask that and what will you do? One of the other questions is like, how old were you when you had the abortion? Okay, that often leads to other things. If they were a teen, generally they weren't married. If they were 35 and they already had two other children, they may have been married. So some of those, those questions can lead you into more information. What were your feelings surrounding the abortion? Keeping in mind that even ambivalence about abortion decision can still be an indicator of post-abortion grief. So it's, it's hard. It's very, very hard at the outset. Or there may be other questions that will come to your mind as you are working with them. The biggest thing that I would recommend is to listen to the Holy Spirit. Okay, as the individuals on the phone, I, I, or you're talking with them, I often have found myself just, wow, Lord, I am so in over my head. <laughs> I had no idea. Lord God, please give me the words to say to this individual right now because I, I just don't have a clue. Oh, Father, what does, he, what does she need? Lord, teach me right now. Show me what questions to ask. And amazingly, he does. Things have come out of my mouth that I'm like, wow. Had no idea where that came from, other than the Holy Spirit. And so he will lead you to those other questions. Another thing you want to find out is group issues. Group, by that I mean, have they had issues being in a group setting before? Because sometimes that can be a natural deterrent. You know, if they were in a Bible study with a, with a group of ladies, and perhaps someone said something like, oh my goodness, those women who have abortions, they're all just murderers. Okay, that will be a deterrent for somebody going to another group of Christian women for a post-abortion recovery group. It's like, she might not want to hear that, okay? And so you want to be able to try to find out a little bit of information. Now, understand that in that screening process, you're not going to know everything, okay? It's just not going to happen because often they're not prepared to tell you much you are developing some trust with this client. And six weeks in a group, a bomb may drop that you're like, dang, it would have been great to know that at the outset. You're just trying to get a little bit of information that you can build a bit of a foundation with. Guidelines, what are group guidelines? Group size is a guideline. Is a group one individual? No, not really, but would I not meet with somebody because I only had one? No, we would. That one person is important and valuable to the Lord. Of course we would, okay? And as that individual meets with a consultant who has already been through an abortion, they're going through a group process together in a community setting. Um, in doing groups, my favorite group size is five. Don't ask me why. 
It just is. When I've had groups that have had five people in it, it's just like there's enough there that there's good conversation. They're able to minister well to one another. And it's big enough that nobody feels like you are on the hot seat the whole time of the group. Um, I limit group size to eight. I did have a group one time with nine. It was too big. Okay, you have women that will hide behind somebody, then you have the individual who will monopolize and talk the whole time. And when you have nine people and you have a monopolizer, it, you're spending all of your time playing interference. It's just too big, it's just too unwieldy. And so that's, that's my experience. That may not be yours, it might be different. And it depends on how many other leaders that you have as well. But you do want to let them know that what you're walking through is a Bible study. In no way, shape, or form do we want to be deceptive about what we're doing, ever. All right, for most of us who are post-abortive, we've already been lied to, we've already been used, we've already been abused. And frankly, if you do that to us too, we're pretty much done with you. And I, and I don't mean that in a nasty way. It's just that has been the experience. And so for a woman who is not healed from her abortion, she isn't going to be willing to continue to step back into that. Let them know, too. It means homework, and it means work. It is hard. There's nothing easy about this. It's hard. It's draining. It will take a lot out of her as she walks through it. And she will have to read scriptures. And my goodness, those scriptures are often really convicting. Okay? Sometimes they keep you up at night as you wrestle with them and as you wrestle through the Lord. Some other considerations may be, and I've encountered this if I've visited with somebody that I'm screening, is like, oh my gosh, my best friend is post-abortive. I'll bring my friend. How about if your friend comes to the next group? Because often, if she brings her friend, the two of them are already a group. They're glued together. And it can have an adverse impact on the rest of the group. The rest of the group then may not gel together because you have these two people that are pretty much stuck together at the hip. And then the other group members never quite can get into that little group of two. The length of the group is also important. Years ago, when we very first started, we were, I loved Forgiven and Set Free. It's a fabulous study. It was like 14 weeks long. And we would lose people because the study was so doggone long. Um, at, at some point, you know what? As you go through healing, frankly, you become somewhat tired of it, you know? Because you're done. You've done the work. And so for the study that we use now, it's, it's eight weeks. We felt like six to eight weeks is really a sufficient amount of time. Sometimes there are other issues that come up and maybe you want it. You know, someone needs a little bit more, needs a little bit of aftercare. Maybe they need another type of group, another type of community in the future. But be mindful of how long that group lasts. And remember, no individual counseling of group members 
while you're in a group process. You don't want to develop this secret or outside relationship with any of the group members so that there's a perception by maybe another group member of, oh, Sherry's buddies with Susie and they are visiting you know, on the outside. Um, I did have a, a, a client one time, immediately after the first time we met, she's like, um, can I meet with you in the other room? Um, no. <laughs> it, it, you know, is there something you need to discuss about the group? Well, no, I just think it'd be good if you and I visited. Oh, wow, that is really tough because we're in a group right now. Maybe that's something that we'll need to discuss in the future. So you want to be really careful about the side conversations with one group member and what, you know, what those entail. Um, like at Path of Life, at the end of every group meeting, we have them fill out an evaluation. And often on that evaluation, if there has been something that has taken place in the group that maybe the leader missed, they will often write that out. Then we can have an opportunity to address it the next time in group. Does that make sense? Instead of trying to do it just with the two of you. And that leads me also then to co-leaders. Years ago, when we first started having post-abortion recovery groups, I, it was, I did groups, Debbie King did all of the one-on-one, -on -one, and that's just how we did it. Then we went to a national conference, and they're all, the big deal was co-leaders, and I was like, what do you even do with them? You know, it's kind of funny to me now, because now I say, have them. You have many different gifts and talents God has made us as a body. And it's so such a blessing to be able to have another individual there with you who has a different perspective on what's taking place than you do. As an example, we had a what I would call a very difficult situation one time where um, leader, I was leading, there was a co-leader, we had eight women in that group, and after the group, one of the members of the group actually contacted somebody else at the center and was saying, this happened to me, this happened to me, this happened to me, she was rude, she cut me off, she did this, she did that, and then I was confronted. And I was like, oh my goodness, did I really do that? And the co-leader was there, and the co-leader's like, yeah, no. She wasn't in the same room we were in. And so you have that perspective of another individual if you end up in a difficult situation like that, or you also have that perspective of another individual if you can sit across from each other and often the body language or a certain look will tell you, okay, I think I just said something I shouldn't have said. Or maybe you offended someone and the, lead, the other leader picked up on that and you did not. Or maybe somebody was attempting to try to share and you're, you're looking over here and you didn't even notice them. The other leader can see that. It just makes for a much better process. But when you do that, you wanna organize that responsibility so there's real clarity around the roles. And generally we'll say, you know, how about if you lead this week, I'll lead next week. So one person is the primary and the other is in more of a supportive role. Um, at different times throughout. One leader is often leading, the other one is a little more of the caretaker, kind of watching what's going on in the room. 
And so what if that other leader isn't post-abortive? Well, many years ago, we had a woman contact us. She was not post-abortive. She wanted to, she felt called to lead groups. And our executive director at that time approached me and I'm like, no, I don't want somebody who's post, not post-abortive to lead a group. And so I went away to a national conference and lo and behold, I got assigned in a group with a woman who wasn't post-abortive. Ha, huh, that's interesting. And so her name was Marilyn and she was delightful. And I felt like the Lord clearly showed me at that time, Sherry, I call people, you don't get the picture. So I flew home and you know, after this and had to go back to the executive director and say, I was wrong. I apologize. And we contacted that woman and she led with us for many, many years. She taught me things nobody could ever teach me. And I learned a valuable lesson that it's not up to me to call people. It's up to the Lord to call people. And I don't have to set those ground rules of you have to be post-abortive or you can't be post-abortive or you at least have to have this kind of degree or this kind of background because the Lord is the one who works on the hearts of the leadership. Um, he is the one. And so remember, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our common ground is our belief, not necessarily the sins that we've committed. Because generally, we've all committed some sin in which we have aborted something that God has intended for our lives. And remember, not all buildings look the same, okay? It takes the blood of Jesus to deliver us from guilt and the acceptance of others will deliver us from shame. Uh, that's a quote by Kelly Williams. It was in the Post-Abortion Review several years ago. So some of the pitfalls with a co-leader can be a co-leader can challenge a leader. That's always a really uncomfortable thing. Or they might become one of the group members, and then you suddenly realize, I'm leading alone. Okay, those things, as hard as they might be, are best discussed right away, like right that same night, as soon as it notices. Don't allow those things and those difficulties between you to fester. The enemy will use whatever he can to tear you apart, to tear your relationship apart, to cause the group to just totally dissipate. And so be aware of those things. Leaders in training are something else. Like at Path of Life, we have a process for all of our volunteers. Every volunteer has to go through basic training. Then if you want to lead in a way that you're working one-on-one -on -one with clients, there's advanced training, whether it's through unplanned pregnancy or like this setting is advanced training for our post-abortion recovery leaders. And then after that, we ask for anybody who wants to be in leadership to become a leader in training in a group. And so that particular group then would have a leader, a co-leader, and a leader in training. In my perfect world, that would not be the same group, the same leadership that they went through when they did their own group. I like for people to see a lot of different kinds of leadership styles so they don't come away with, well, Sherry always does it this way, or Becky always does it this way. Becky said, Becky, you know, you want them to be able to, to learn, to see those different styles and to develop the gifts and grow in the way that the Lord intends them to grow, um, not to look just like you. We're also, as leaders, responsible for the environment. The environment being the setting 
where you are? Is it safe? And by safe, I don't just mean, you know, are there locks on the doors? I mean, is it a safe place that they can go in where there would be no interruptions? I have had groups, in fact, I had a man walk into our groups one time and I got up and stood in front of him and he was kind of like, do you know who I am? You know, and I've heard myself say, I don't really care who you are. I'm having a group right now and you can't come in here. <laughs> Which, I mean, it's kind of an arrogant thing to say, but when I'm leading a group, I'm mom. I'm mama bear, okay? And these are my chicks back here and they're fragile and you're not gonna get to them. And so in that, I caution you in leading in a home. I did have groups in my home when I was single, but once I had a family, we have people coming and going. And that can shut somebody down if they hear, you know, someone coming in the door or someone coming in at a particular time. Make sure, of course, that you have Kleenex. The item I always forget, don't ask me why I always forget Kleenex, I just do. <laughs> um, and be careful. Just guard against any kind of interruptions. Pre-group, meaning before you start a group. Now we're kind of back to the beginning. What do you do? You pray, pray, pray. Oh my goodness. You contact those group members, then you pray, pray, pray some more. You meet with your co-leader. You understand your roles clearly. Then you pray, pray, pray some more. You send out some welcome letters. Make sure that you're keeping and maintaining contact with the client. You don't want to contact them and then six months later, oh, by the way, we're starting a group. We want to keep, try to keep that contact going. And then you pray, pray, pray. Pray, pray, pray some more. So what are some of the keys to small groups? And I think I put that as a handout at the end. It's page five. Um, you'll find those group guidelines, seven keys to healthy small groups. And that's healthy small groups, whether they're post-abortion recovery groups or any kind of a group, particularly in a Christian context. They must be centered on Christ, involving prayer, a model of discipleship, and ministry. They have to have a clear purpose. In that, like when we have post-abortion recovery groups, I know it sounds a little bizarre, we have a contract. What does that contract look like? It can be as simple as my goals for the group are, and the client lists what those are, okay? But it also needs to involve a commitment on the part of the client to be there every time. I years ago heard Terry Ricer speak, and she said, yes, once you commit to a post-abortion group, you need to be there unless you're dead. Whoa, Terry, that seems a bit harsh. But what she was trying to do is drive the point home of the group cohesiveness. And if you're coming and going from a group, the cohesiveness is never allowed to develop. And it's very, very important in a post-abortion group that that commitment is quite strong. A good beginning. Okay, we all know first impressions are everything, the most important impression. And so we want to make sure that they feel welcome, they feel invited, we're well prepared, particularly at that first meeting. Now, I'm not letting you off the hook to not prepare for the others, but just know your, your level of preparation is certainly heightened for that very first group meeting. They're also looking for a helpful leader, someone who's prayerful well-prepared, active, and participates. It's not just a matter of, I'm the girl here to unlock the door. 
No, they want to be able to engage with you um, as well. In fact, I was on a, a, a Zoom group. I help with a friends and family group for um, parents whose kids are struggling with same-sex attraction. Um, and I was on that last night, and I had one of the parents say to me, so tell me why you're here anyway. <laughs> and I kind of had to laugh a little bit because it's like, okay, I was stepping back a fair amount, and I wasn't really engaging with them. And so that created for her a question, like, what are you doing here? Am I your science project? I mean, she didn't say that, but that was some, somewhat implied on her question. Um, we also want to have clear communication patterns and equalized participation as a leader. It's up to you because you're going to have people like me who are naturally verbal processors. We're going to talk more than people like my husband who is more contemplative and thoughtful, and you need to make sure that the verbal processor over here doesn't talk the whole time, and this poor con contemplative person never has an opportunity to maybe share within the groove. You want to support interactive discussion, and you want to watch the group go from surface to depth. And often you see this happening very quickly. By the time they get into the group, they realize that it's safe, often they're ready to go quite deep. And you want to make sure there's good listening as well as speaking on everyone's part. And that the content that you have is worthwhile. Like Becky was describing some of the resources that we recommend. Be careful in, in considering and choosing resources that you use because you don't want to get something that you go, okay, shucks, this is junk. You know, your group members are going to pick up on that and they're going to see that you're not fully on board and engaged with that. And in that, like at Path of Life, before we use any resource, we as a leadership team vet it first. We don't put it out there and say, hey, let's try this with our clients. We try it first to make sure that it's something that is indeed worthwhile. Can we use it for good discussion, study, and does it provide specific steps that will ask the participants to take some action that will cause forward movement. And we want to grow trust and caring through feelings, and there will be conflict, okay? And understand that, that conflict is going to take place within the group. You don't say that to scare you, but anytime we're going through some tough stuff, there will be times of conflict, and we have to be prepared for those. Once again, leaning on the spirit, ready to step into that. And so now, as we move into the final section, are you ready to lead a group? Are you guys doing OK, or do you need to like stand up and stretch for a bit? You're OK? All righty. There are some core questions in this section that we'll deal with. Those are going to be post-abortion syndrome, which you've, kind of, you've already looked at, because I saw that in the portion that Janet did and your basis for service, our qualifications, and then finally, let's look at our primary resource. So if we look at post-abortion syndrome, and Janet already discussed this, I saw it on the first page of your outline, it's that chronic inability to process feeling, emotions, and experiences. In short, we shut down emotionally. That is a really big deal. When we shut down, not only, I just don't feel anything, Okay, I don't feel the good and I don't feel the bad. Because if I feel anything, I don't know what's gonna happen. If I start to cry, I don't know when I'm gonna stop. 
And so you have to be able to um, understand that, not only understand that, but buy into the idea of post-abortion syndrome and what does it mean. Some of the common symptoms I've listed down there, and I saw Janet had listed those as well, the guilt, anger, anxiety, overactivity, those ways that we cope, demanding, unhealthy, broken relationships, depression, that sense of loss. That depression can be just low grade, kind of all the time, blah. The psychological numbing, that's the shutting down. Suicide, be prepared with some kind of a, you know, if your client indicates suicidal ideation, what will you do? Do you have a worksheet that you go through with them? Do you have a referral service or what does that look like? Other psychological problems, keep in mind that teens in particular are vulnerable. Think of it when you were a teen, okay, it was a big deal if like my outfit didn't look like everybody's outfit. It was a big deal if I had a zit. I don't have the emotional resources at 13, 14, 15, 16 to deal with a sexual relationship, much less aborting my child. And so the vulnerability is incredible for a teenager. And then Becky was talking about too, the difficult making, difficulty making important decisions because at the point at which it was really important I made a good decision, I blew it. So I think I don't have the ability to make good decisions or other self-punishing or self-degrading behaviors. Now we often think of those and we go, oh, that's drug and alcohol abuse. Yeah, not, not all the time. Okay, for some of us, drug and alcohol is, abuse is not an issue, but overwork is an issue. Okay, trying really hard to make up for the loss and prove myself, that performance base, that is another way of a self-punishing behavior that can become a way of manifesting post-abortion grief. And I'm sorry, I flipped to this slide too fast. As we move then to basis of service, what do I have to do? I have to search my heart. Um, 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5 says, so be careful not to jump to conclusions before the Lord returns as to whether or not someone is faithful. When the Lord comes, he will bring our deepest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. And then God will give to everyone whatever praise is due. I love it that he knows my heart entirely. Okay, and so I have to ask myself the questions. Who do I seek to serve? Am I willing to invest time, study, and training? Am I called or am I driven? And you want to beat Satan to the punch when questioning your motives. So the searching of my heart, I often refer to this as like take a little rear view mirror time. I realize this is a side mirror, not a rear view mirror, but same idea. Self-reflection. Okay, we have to be pure of heart or our tendency is to become arrogant. So I want to say, Lord, search my heart. Look deep into my soul. Help me to let go of judgmental attitudes. Be willing to work side by side with whoever the Lord brings my way. And some of the clients that come my way are hard to work with. Okay, so can I do that, Lord? Can I do that in those situations? And can I, like I was telling you earlier, work with that leader who's not post-abortive. I already told you I didn't want to do it. 
okay? I said no. But then I had to humble my heart and search my heart because it was very clear the Lord was calling her into service. So I have to ask myself the question, am I ready to live an examined life? Because once I choose to step into ministry, I am. Am I willing to allow him to reveal strongholds? In 1 Corinthians, let's see, wait. Yeah, four, three and four. What about me? Have I been faithful? Well, it matters very little what you or anyone else thinks. I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. My conscience is clear, but that isn't what matters. It is the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. Am I willing, Lord, to allow you to reveal some of my strongholds? Because sometimes in the group, some of those strongholds are going to come to light dog on it. And sometimes working with other leaders, they're going to come to light and I'm going to see who I really am. Am I honest with my family and others about my abortion? Very hard to be in leadership if that is not the case, okay? And that's a touchy question. People have often said, so I have small children. When should I tell them? Ask the Lord is my common response to that. Um, when my oldest daughter was about five and her little sister had just been born, we're driving down the street one day and she is just like, oh, mom, isn't it delightful to have a little sister? And I'm thinking, I am so glad you feel that way. Because <laughs> the five-year-old, you know, she had a lot of time alone with mom and dad. I wasn't really sure how she was going to handle having this little sister. Then she drops the bomb of, you know, Mom, it's so weird, but I always felt like I had other brothers and sisters. <gasps> really? <laughs> what made you feel that way? She goes, I don't know. There's just something that's always made me feel like I've got other brothers and sisters somewhere. Okay. And so at that moment, I was like, Lord, um, show me how to be, she's five. Show me how to be honest but not dump too much information in a five-year-old mind that I don't need to do right now. And I found myself saying, well, gee, honey, you'll never believe this, but actually you had three brothers and sisters before mommy knew daddy. Mommy and daddy lost a baby before you, they had you, and we lost a baby between you and your sister. So you do, you have five brothers and sisters in heaven with your grandparents. Oh my gosh, isn't that the best? I have five brothers and sisters. I can hardly wait to meet them. Can we get ice cream? And she was done with it. You know, I mean, it was very clear at that point. The Lord, it was like, okay, that conversation is done. But yet the door was like this. And over the years, the Lord continued to open the door. And by the time she was 12, the kid comes home and she's doing a paper on abortion <laughs> in her public school classroom. And she's saying, can I, do, do you have information? Can you tell me anything about it? And it was like, you know, the door was open and I told her the whole story at that point. Would I recommend that for most 12 year olds? No, I wouldn't. But I've been called to publicly speak and I never wanted her to hear that from anyone other than me. And so she didn't because why? The Lord prepared the timing. The Lord prepared her heart. And so that is a crucial aspect of the ministry if the Lord wants you to do that. Um, how, how he will set that up.
And so you have to be willing to allow him to do that, to rest upon that strong foundation of the Lord. Let go of your judgmental attitudes. The grudges, I love this old quote, grudges are like live hand grenades. It's wise to release them before they destroy you because they will destroy us. So if I'm holding unresolved sin, I must release it. I must ask the Lord to reveal that sin in my life. I have to walk with him, being full of depth, maturity, and strong, enjoying a consistent walk. In Proverbs 8.13, it says, all who fear the Lord will hate evil. That's why I hate pride, arrogance, corruption, and perverted speech. In Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before a fall. We've all heard that. And James 4, 6, he gives us more and more strength to stand against such evil desires. As the scriptures say, God sets himself against the proud but he shows favor to the humble. Be willing to live a humble life. Accept the fact that you can be wrong in any situation. Do you possess a teachable spirit? Can you stay teachable after you make a mistake or after you've been ministering in post-abortion work for 30 years? Or does that make you think that you know it all? I've always said, if I reach the point when I know it all, it's time for me to be done with ministry because at that point I've become too prideful and too haughty to really be of a whole lot of value. And I have to ask myself, who do I seek to serve? Often we can go, I'm ready to go, I'm here, I'm prepared. But we have to remember it's the Lord's work. Respect is earned and not demanded. Because Jesus has said to us in John 20, 21, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. We wait for him to send us out. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race, complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace, Acts 20, 24. Our highest calling is leading any client or anyone we minister to into the presence of the Father. And so in that, we must listen to the voice of the Father. You have to have a sense of calling from the Lord, not just that desire to help. As Becky was saying, I can help these women. I remember thinking that myself when I was 20, 27. And I laugh now because it's like I was no more prepared to help these women than the man in the moon. And so who do you seek to serve? Am I that people pleaser? Not by way of eye service, as with man-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. The heart is where that service has to come from. That heart has to be directed by him. I also have to be willing to engage in study, training, supervision, engage in a thorough study, and submit to an authority before I can exercise authority. I have to be able to bend the knee. Am I sensitive to God's calling and focused fully and completely on that? Or am I called or am I driven, driven by my own desires, driven by a desire to fill up, get something, get the attaboys, have people notice me, or perhaps pay back for my sin that I've committed. I want to hear his voice, respond out of love for him, now, mixed motives 
we're always going to have mixed motives. And so if I wait until my motives are entirely pure, I'll wait forever because they'll never be entirely pure. However, I want to question my motives myself and be attentive to that and look to my qualifications, okay? Because my calling, this is God's work. Your primary concern should be living in obedience to him. It may not necessarily be a change of heart. Sometimes I know he's calling me to do something and kicking and screaming. I just have to go and be obedient and allow him the time to work in my heart and to make the necessary changes. Then and only then will I be able to minister as he's called. In Luke 1.37, it says, for nothing is impossible with God. In the New American Standard Version, it says, no power, no word of God or of power will be void. How interesting. So look at the calling, look at that vision, look at the power. If I have a clear vision from him, I won't stray because of circumstances, because the circumstances will get hard. It will be a struggle. It will not always be smooth sailing. In Acts 1-4, it says, in one of these meetings as he was eating a meal with them, he told them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you what he promised, which is what? The Spirit. Wait for the gift of the Father, the empowering of the Holy Spirit before going out to minister. And once that empowering comes, in Acts 1.8 it says, But when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will receive power and tell people about me everywhere. In Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Then you have your mission. Paul was very well educated and he was highly qualified. Yet he knew his calling for a good 14 to 15 years before his ministry began. Christ was the son of God. Undoubtedly, he knew his calling at a very young age, but he didn't start to minister until he was 30. Preparation definitely goes into the ministry. However, be wary of overconfidence and an attitude that says, ha, I can do this in my sleep because you can't. Ministry is not something that just becomes rote. Jesus has said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. But Jesus did not say that the strength of someone other than himself is to be made perfect in our weakness. When power is relinquished to Jesus, the result is gracious leading. When power is abused by others, the result is often ungodly control. That's a quote out of a book called Coming of Age by Lois Mode Raby on page 154. And finally, let's talk about our primary resource. I love this little picture of this little guy. The Bible's bigger than he is. I think he's so cute, but that's our primary resource. We believe God's word to be directive, to be inerrant, to tell us everything that we need to know. And when we rest upon that primary resource and use it, as the template for any of our other, our secondary resources, our workbooks that we use, we will have a solid grounding and a solid place to land. And finally, our clients. What will our clients be like? As you can see, and I've tried to pull from these pictures, it'll be a lot of different people. They will be young, they will be old. Becky was saying, for most people, it's seven to 12 years after their abortion before they ever begin to look at that issue. 
And so we had a woman, I think she was in her 70s, um, go through a group whose abortion was like over 50 years before, a struggle for her for such a long time. We've had young women contact us just a few weeks after their abortion. And so they will be very different. You want to consider your group format. What will that look like? Will it be a weekly group? Will it be like a weekend plus some weeks or a fully retreat format or a combination of some? Consider that as you're thinking about setting up groups. And in conclusion, just remember, the post-abortive don't need doctrine. They need healing. In other words, we can't just dish out a whole bunch of head knowledge. It must be heart knowledge as well. The guidelines presented here are simply that, just guidelines. Check everything against God's word. The word is unchangeable. Our guidelines must be flexible. Typically, they must be applied graciously, sometimes yet firmly. It's not a feeling, but a gift of discernment from the Lord. So ask him for it. He will give you that discernment when we ask. As leaders, we can meet a person's physical dilemma after dilemma, or we can also share the power of God's love and see their lives absolutely transformed and watch them become independently dependent on Christ. If you're called to the ministry, be prepared to minister even to one or two. Jesus went out of his way for one person on many occasions. And we want to be the word of God that becomes flesh to those around us and to the woes that the Lord brings to us. Thank you.